what does it mean when you're in a place where you're not moving quote unquote forward? And like, when is it a sign of, of stagnancy? And when is that an indication that it's something that you should stick with? Just because something is feeling hard or sticky does not necessarily mean that you're not on the right path. I'm Zach Foster, and you're listening to Seamside, the show where we explore the inner work of textiles. And today we sit down with weaver Jennifer Mao. Y'all, we are just having too much fun on the Nook. Just the other day, we had Rose Perlman and her mom join us for an eye-opening workshop on rug hooking. And coming up on September 20th, we're going to be joined by Alice Gabb from episode 29 for a presentation on the radical history of protest banners. And then nearly every day we're hanging out together in sewing circles. So if this sounds like your kind of fun, why don't you come join us? I've heard that sometimes people think we're a bunch of hoity-toity professional artists. And okay, maybe that's true for like two or three of us. But the common thread that runs through all of us on the Nook is that we love exploring our connection to textiles. Come see for yourself. There's a free trial to the link at the nook in the <laughs> There's a free trial to the nook at the link in the show notes below. We sure would love to have you with us. Would you listen to this? This review comes from Raffy Bomb 27, who says Seamside is always a peaceful joy. Zach brings such peace, joy, and magic to each conversation. I love the big and little talks with each artist. Thank you, Rafi Bomb 27 for that five-star review. I really do appreciate it. It's the best way for other folks to find the magic that is Seamside. So if you got a minute, you can write me a review. I would really appreciate it. Now, I first met Jennifer Mao in the early days of the pandemic. I saw this weaver in Brooklyn on Instagram who was offering this pay-as-you-wish model for her weavings every week. And both the text in her work and the economic model she adopted made me want to know so much more about where she was coming from. So our first conversation, almost two years ago, focused on the political and economic side of making. And in that conversation, we shared a mutual love for Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift. We talked about weaving as a metaphor for social justice and how it can empower us to close the gaps that we see in the world around us. If you haven't heard our first conversation, I highly encourage you to go back and give a listen to episode two, back when I was just a little seamside baby. Now fast forward nearly two years and Jen and I catch back up to see where time and practice have brought her. I catch her in the middle of a season that will be familiar to many artists and makers listening. A season of not making. With this in mind, we discuss, does an artist have to make art to be an artist? How do we move through the quiet seasons of our creative practice? And how do we become our own best friend when we need it most? I hope you enjoyed this episode of Backstitch with Weaver Jennifer Mao. Jen, it's so good to see you again. Oh, likewise. So good to see you. It's hard to believe that when we last talked, I can remember it very clearly. It was January of 2022. I was sitting in the basement of my apartment at John C. Campbell Folk School. And you and I were talking before my residency there had even gotten started. Like I didn't know anybody there yet. It was very quiet. And I was just like, where am I? But I was talking to you. So it was good. 
Oh, yes. I actually vividly remember the view outside of my window. And I do remember it was January because all of the trees were bare. I think the ground was frosty. We just had a little bit of snow. So oh, the fact that really it's been almost two years since we've talked feels very wild to me. But yeah, it's funny how time goes. But here we are right on time, getting back together. Exactly. Again. Always on time. Always day. on time. Well, you know, when I think of our last conversation, Jen, and I would encourage people if you haven't heard it to go back and listen to it. When I think about what you and I spent so much time talking about last time, Jen, it was the kind of the economic side of making, especially when, in terms of selling our work and making it accessible in the ways that we can to as many people as we can. Mm-hmm. I remember we talked quite a bit about your pay-as-you-wish model, which I'll be very curious to know your, your thoughts on that now, almost two years later. The gift formed a foundation for much of our conversation. And so I, I'm just so curious to know, one year and eight months later, what is Jennifer Mao up to? Yeah, that's such a big question in some ways that has a short answer and has a long answer. Um, So I guess the short answer is that I've been up to more of the same in some ways. So the weekly pay what you wish model that you and I spoke so much about the last time we connected, I'm still doing the dang thing. And it's been almost three years of doing that at this point. So there's that piece. And then the slightly longer answer, and it's funny that we're sort of making this connection now at this time in the summer, is that from a weaving perspective or from an artist's perspective, I really haven't been quote unquote doing or making much at all. And so that's been a little bit of a change for me. When I first started to weave in 2020, we were very much in a different place and I had a lot of time to really be in my apartment and to really dig in. And over the past few months in particular, I've been finding my natural energy and inclination and excitement when it comes to weaving or when it comes to textile related things has really been you know, it's always an ebb and a flow, right? And so, you know, I've been for the past few months not doing as much weaving or not doing as much or making as much work as I normally do. And in other ways, I've been doing a lot, right? I've been spending a lot of time outside. I've been being in community with people. I've been living a life, right? And so that's something that I'm really thinking about a lot these days is what does it mean when you're in a place where you're not moving quote unquote forward? And when does that indicate stagnancy and the indication that maybe you need to do something different? Know, that your body and your mind and the, you know the world is giving you signs like when is it a sign of, of stagnancy and when is that an indication that it's something that you should stick with right like oh just because something is feeling hard or sticky does not necessarily mean that you're not on the right path right um, and so those two things are 
in tension with one another and outwardly it looks exactly the same, right? That you're standing still. So I think I'm sitting a lot with that feeling right now. Well, how do you begin to sort all that out for yourself? Like, how are you feeling, I guess, emotionally about not weaving as much as you used to? Yeah. So I think that I have a lot of internalized stuff around productivity or what it means to be moving in a good direction, right? So the idea that, all right, progress is linear. And from year one to year two, year two to year three, there's going to be sort of this clear through line. Sometimes that's the case and sometimes it really isn't. So I think that's one thing that I'm really trying to pause and interrogate. So as I'm feeling things like, oh gosh, like why aren't I feeling more excited? Or I should sit down at the loom to weave because once you get started, then of course this excitement takes over, right? So you have all of those woulda, coulda, shouldas. And then I feel like I have to just take a step back to say, and also it's completely fine to do nothing. So that has always felt really hard for me to do, not only in artistic practice, but in life. So in some ways, when these kind of sticky feelings are bubbling up, part of it for me is just trying to name it and sit with it instead of really trying to think about, okay, how do I work through this or how do I move through this? So that's something that I'm thinking a lot about. So what what name are you giving it at this point in time as we're talking today? Is the name stagnancy or is it rest or is it space or is it something else? Yeah. Hmm. I think if I were to describe it now, it wouldn't be any of those things per se. I think I feel like right now I'm in a liminal space that I feel on the cusp or on the threshold between one thing and the other. And I'm not exactly sure what's on the other side yet, right? And so this feeling of, I wouldn't say aimlessness or directionless, but this feeling, I have a sense that when we connect a year and eight months from now, I'll be able to look back, right, and say, ah, with this perspective that I now have that was impossible for me to have in the moment, I really now see that that was one step that was necessary to get to whatever is coming next. And right now, I have no idea what's coming next. And that feels exciting. It feels scary. It feels like a lot of things. Okay, but I'm so excited for you when you said liminal space and I think threshold and I think the next thing, the unknown, that's so, that is exciting. Because I wonder, I've wondered this before, and I'd be curious your thoughts on it too. Like, does, does a weaver need to weave to be a weaver? Does a quilter need mm. to quilt to be a quilter? Does an artist need to make art to be an artist? Hmm. Yeah. You know, 
Okay, this is getting me excited because like I mentioned before, one thing that I have not been doing is weaving, but I've been spending a lot of time outdoors and a lot of time just thinking. And one of the things that I did last weekend is I took a foraging walk in the woods with the Outdoor Institute out in the Catskills, who, by the way, I would highly recommend if you're interested in this type of thing. And Laura led us through the forest and introduced us to different mushrooms, being able to identify different trees and plants. And one thing that really stuck out to me when she was talking about how to properly harvest a mushroom is that the mushroom is the fruiting body of this really vast mycelium network that is invisible and underneath our feet. And so her point in saying this is you don't have to worry that you're going to hurt the mushroom by plucking it because it is akin to picking an apple off the tree. You're just seeing the visible fruits, but the tree is still there. The mycelium is still there. And so as she was talking about this, I was really thinking about the metaphor between mycelium or even thinking about the environment or like the terroir, that parallel with creative work, right? Which is that the fruits or the mushrooms are the things that you make and there is always this network of things happening beneath the soil that is, it's necessary to nourish that piece or that network or those ideas or whatever it is that is the environment that makes it possible for you to create work, for you to do it. And so I've been thinking about this summer or this period of quote unquote stagnancy is that moment that all right, I'm nourishing my mycelium, right? I'm, I'm really tending to the things that will make it possible eventually for me to make something else, even though I don't know what that thing is yet. I love that. I love that. Yeah, because I think that, I think for a long time, I thought an artist was more of a, an occupation, right? It was a thing that one did. Mm-hmm. But when I left my occupation of teaching, and I stepped into this role as full-time artist that I so enjoy now, I felt like I wasn't stepping into a job, but rather into a brand new space and way of being. Mm. The proof of that is not in what is produced. I think I would say that an artist isn't someone who makes art, but rather who connects dots together. And that can happen underground, subliminally undetected, right? So yeah, at this point in my life, I'm leaning towards yes, that a weaver can be a weaver without weaving and a quilter can be a quilter without quilting because our minds, the thing that really makes the art, the thing that really makes the work is still active, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I'm with you on this point, Zach. And your thought makes me immediately think about Rick Rubin's book and he has such a great working definition of an artist as not an occupation but the way in which you show up in the world right the way in which you pay attention to stuff and it has less to do with 
the thing you produce or the thing that you make. And I love that framing because it takes so much pressure off in some ways, right? So, and, and I think too, we have all of these kind of cultural, not hangups, but all of these cultural ideas and mythologies around what being an artist is. And if you boil it down to, well, if you're paying attention, if you are thinking about things in a certain way, you don't have to worry about the work. You're already an artist, right? And um, yeah, I'm curious whether that comes up or how that comes up on the nook, right? I, I think too, for people who, you know, are in craft related work, sometimes there's this, like, sometimes there is a feeling that you need to downplay what you're doing. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm just knitting. I'm just like making my cute little crafts. There's a way in which in being modest, people downplay the work that they make, how much they're paying attention, the dots that they're connecting. So yeah, I, I'm with you. You can be, you can be an artist and having not made a thing, you can be a weaver if you don't weave, you can be a quilter if you don't quilt. And I think it does us as makers and artists a disservice to downplay our own work in the sense that just last night on the Nook, we were having a sew-in circle and you never know what we're going to talk about. You know, it's open forum. Any, anybody can raise any topic they want to discuss. But in, on this particular time, things just got real. Real in the way that some people might call heavy or depressing or a downer or whatever. But we were talking about things that everybody experiences, life, death, disappointment loss, grief, all these things. And I was participating in the conversation, but I was also just witnessing the conversation. And it was so fascinating to me that here's this group of textile people. And some of us know each other better than others, you know, of course, in, in a group that size. But we were seamlessly pivoting between textiles and life experience. And we just kept going back and forth in a way that felt very natural and very mm -hmm. easy. And I think for the first time in my mind, at least this clearly, I saw that one of the things that makes textiles so special that way, so intimate that way, is that as humans, we have chosen to incorporate textiles into some of our most memorable, notable life events, right? Mm -hmm. A baby's born, what do you wrap it up in, right? Uh, you're graduating, what do you wear, right? You're getting married, what does that look like? You go into a hospital, what do you wear there? And at the very end, I mean, one of the, my most recent memories of the importance of textiles is when my grandma passed away recently. And my cousin and I got to go into her closet and have a little fashion show and like, oh, we think we should bury grandma on this. We think we should bury grandma on that. I mean, we made light of it, but it just gets to the point that when we encounter, when we experience some of our biggest life's moments as humans, we don't have to look too far to find textiles. They're right there within arm's reach. And so when we say, oh, I'm just sewing, I'm just weaving, I'm just knitting, it's not only downplaying this way that you've chosen to spend your time, but I wonder if in a way that also minimizes 
our own lived experiences. That I wonder to what extent the things that we make and the things we experience in our lives are connected and one and the same. And can we talk about our work and our lives in a way that's mutually respectful of, of each other? Can we, for example, downplay our work but still respect our lived experience? I'm just asking the question. I don't know the answer to that. How's that landing mm-hmm. with you? Yeah, one, one thing that that makes me think of is the idea that we are inevitably always our worst critics, right? The things that we would say of ourselves, of our own work, of our own lives is never what we would say to a friend doing the same thing, right? So the idea that really sticks in my mind now is how can you be kind to yourself and a good friend to yourself in the ways that you show up for others naturally through the course of your life. And I'm thinking about this because a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about this a lot. And a quote that I encountered was from the philosopher Seneca. And the quote was, what progress, you ask, have I made? I have begun to be a friend to myself. And I love that, right? Because I was thinking so much about stagnancy. I was thinking so much about what am I even doing? And that idea of trying to know myself, trying to nourish the network, the mycelium network that makes it possible for me to make things, to be a friend to myself and having that in and of itself be such an accomplishment is what I, yeah, is really, really sticking with me these days. Will you read us that piece of wisdom one more time, please? Yeah. So the quote is from the philosopher Seneca, and he says, what progress, you ask, have I made? I have begun to be a friend to myself. On the second reading, the word begun really stuck out to me. It's a process, right? Like it's, you don't have to be in any one place. You're already there. You're tumbling forward, whether you realize it or not. And you're becoming. Yeah, I think it also really talks about the idea that your relationship with yourself is consistently ongoing. And it's the easiest thing to ignore because it feels one and the same, like, oh, I am just me, right? But yeah, it's a lot of, in the same way that you have to nourish your relationships with other people, got to nourish your relationship with yourself too. Have you ever written yourself a letter when you get stuck? I have not. Have you? <sighs> okay. Yeah. And not often, maybe just a couple of times in life where I just felt like, I just felt like I was adrift and wasn't quite sure which way to go, which way was forward. And so I would sit down and literally, dear Zach, right? Like, Uh is that formal? And what's so interesting is I kind of got into this, I don't know what they call it, automatic writing, or where you're just not thinking too hard about it. You're You're just writing. Like, what would I tell myself in this situation? And I found myself using a lot of similar words and phrases from the letter 
that my parents had written for me when I graduated high school and they published, they wrote it for the back of the yearbook. You know how you can like rent a page or whatever. So my parents had written this really beautiful, encouraging letter to me. And the tone of the letter that I wrote myself 20 plus years later mirrored much of the tone of that letter that they had written me. And it made me think that by the act of writing myself, I was able to tap into kind of the, the universal parent side of myself or the universal caregiver side of myself, the side of me that knows what I need to hear and can tell it to me better than anybody else can. So take that for what it's worth. I That's one of my like favorite tools and I only have to bust it out every once in a while. Like I tell you, I've only done it two or three times in my life, but it can be really powerful. I'm working, I'm working through the artist way right now with Julie Cameron. And I'm remembering now that part of the practice of morning pages where you just free write a few pages in the morning where she uses it as the space to say, okay, little Julia, like what, you know, what, what should I do today? Right. And then in through that process, um, finding the answers within yourself. Yeah. I think that from my answer, you can tell that I am not a completely devoted disciple in the way that I want to be (laughs) of Julia's, but I'm definitely working through the steps and just trying not to hold myself to the standards that she has for us at the beginning as you're trying to work it out. But yeah, I thought I saw maybe through a post or a conversation that we had that you also have picked it up recently. Am I misremembering this? Well, no, but it's, I read her book years ago and it was formative and it, my practice with morning pages has shifted over time. Like it becomes what you need it to be. So mm-hmm. I think Julia says, you know, is it three pages or 30 minutes or something like mm-hmm. that? Right. And now I tend to do more like one page, which is maybe appropriate for this season of life. But I can tell you for me, the power of morning pages was I could only bear to see myself complain about the same thing over and over until I just like, okay, that's enough. It's time to make a change. Mm. You know, like I'm like, it's either yeah. as my father-in-law would say, shit or get off the pot. You know? <laughs> 100%. <laughs> Come yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So I wonder if this might be an interesting way to kind of start tying a bow on this conversation, which is, You have still been doing your weekly weavings pretty religiously for three years. Even through this season of ebb, you have maintained this rhythm of the weekly weavings until. Yeah, I recently, two weeks ago, was the first time in almost three years that I missed a week. And... Some of it had to do with logistical things. I was traveling. I was also working through some health things. And under normal circumstances, I think I probably would have pushed through it. I think I probably would have organized that week in a way that I would have been able to get one done. And I just didn't. I I just decided I just decided not to and it felt like a good moment in that I had set up this container for myself 
this weekly structure. And for me, I'm the type of person who does need some kind of structure, needs some kind of accountability to myself. And in making the decision to skip that week, I had this realization that my accountability structure to myself was getting conflated with perceived accountability that others were holding me to, right? You know, no one cared that I missed a week. Literally no one noticed that in my bio where I say the week of the upcoming week, week I changed it by seven days. No one came into my DMs outraged saying, Jen, I was really, I had set my calendar and why didn't she release the weaving, right? Nobody cared. And so that was such a good moment of you don't do something and and yet the sun rises and yet things still go on. And so that was such a nice moment of lapsing and having it feel like an intentional lapse. I decided to do it. I have since now posted the week after. I have intentions of posting this week. And I think that there was a fear for me that, oh, if I didn't do this thing as prescribed, then the whole thing would come tumbling down and I wouldn't be able to sustain it. And I think the the benefit now, like the great benefit of perspective of looking back at almost three years of doing the thing is, nope, it doesn't signify anything that you don't want it to, right? So that was a useful lesson, I think. So in a year and eight months, we'll talk back and say, okay, was that the one time that you missed it? Or maybe, or maybe you've crossed the threshold into something else since then. Who knows what your, will you be in a a year and eight months? I think for me, it's so helpful to hear you say that because it's a good reminder of Who's holding whom here? Am I holding these containers I create or are these containers holding me, right? Like who's mm. serving who might be another way to say it, right? Are are these containers serving me or am I serving the container, right? And I know that when I recently had to go back home for my grandma's, you know, the turn that she took, I had to just flip a lot of switches off. I had to flip off the podcast, for example. I definitely stepped away from Instagram. And like you said, the world continued to revolve around the sun, right? The Milky Way still spun in the universe. Everything is good. And in a sense, it felt very comforting to me coming out of that to know that life can expand and contract in response to the the moment. And that felt really good in the end. So I like to think that, yes, I have a lot of containers, a lot of projects, but I'm holding them and I can put them down if I need to put them down and I can pick them back up if I need to pick them back up. I love that. I love that visual too. Jen, this has been such a nourishing conversation for me. And I just want to thank you for carving out time this afternoon for this talk. I know we could just as easily talk twice as long, but thank you so much for this half hour. It's been really special. Oh, Thank you so much for, yes, just putting up with me trying to figure out a time that worked. And yeah, this has been the per, I feel like the the time in this space was perfect for us to reconnect. So thank you for creating this container for us. 
hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jen Mao as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember, Zach is Z-A-K. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sew something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.